Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I am your host Crawford Gribben. Today my guest is Dr Adrian Neely. Adrian is Director of the Doctoral Programme and Professor of Historical Theology at Puritan Reformed Theological Seminary in Grand Rapids, Michigan, USA. Adrian is a prolific author of works on reform scholasticism and um, what we might call the Dutch Puritan movement. And today we're going to be talking to Adrian about his most recent publication, a volume he has edited with Vandenhoek and Ruprecht called Petrus van Maastricht, 1630-1706, Text, Context and Interpretation. Adrian, congratulations on the book and welcome back to the show. Uh, Thank you, Crawford, for having me on your show. It's, It's always a pleasure to have you come and talk about your work. The last time we spoke, it was about... Um, your previous project on Van Maastricht, which was a book called Before Jonathan Edwards. Before we dive into this book, uh, the, the Van den Hoek and Ruprecht book, could you remind us a little bit about Before Jonathan Edwards and how you used Van Maastricht in that book to talk about the sources of New England theology? Yeah, in uh, my, my Oxford book, Before Edwards, the sources of New England uh, theology is primarily concerned with the, the theological sources, the theological background of, uh, of what we find in the writings of Jonathan Edwards. And over the last 20 years, many publications on Edwards and after Edwards has shaped scholarship uh, what was missing uh, is uh, to show that uh, that Edwards was deeply rooted in uh, Reformed Orthodoxy and reform, Reformed Scholasticism, uh, and that these sources uh, have shaped uh, his theology. And uh, although he appropriated uh, that in his own time, and as such that Edwards is, can be say uh, seen as a transitional figure, but deeply rooted in the Reformed Orthodoxy of the 17th century. Now, that that book, the Oxford book that you just mentioned, was not your first publication on Van Maastricht, was it? No. Uh, The the Oxford book primarily focused on Jonathan Edwards, but I use uh, 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 Maastricht uh, as an example of continuity and discontinuity in terms of theological development between the time of Maastricht and Jonathan Edwards. Uh, in my uh, earlier work, 2009, a bril publication, Peters van Maastricht, Reformed Orthodoxy, uh, Method and Piety, focuses on uh, that method, particularly the scholastic method and piety, uh, can go together and is very, uh, very visible in the publication of Peters van Maastricht, Theoretica, uh, uh, practica theology, where he really keeps the the theory and the practice of theology together. So Petrus van Maastricht is someone who has become very important to you and very important about the way you think about 
the development of Protestant theology and its evolution, I suppose, through different contexts and in different periods. Before we begin talking about your most recent book, the Van den Heuken Reprecht edition that's just come out, could you remind us who was Van Maastricht and perhaps remind us why he matters? Yeah. Maastricht uh, lived primarily in the so-called high orthodoxy period of the reformed orthodoxy from 1630 to 1706. And I see him more and more as a codifying figure of uh, reformed uh, theology of the 17th century. Uh, So on the one hand, I would say he is not uh, unique. uh, But on the other hand, he has some very interesting features, for example, uh, all of the theologic, uh, theological loci are addressed uh, exegetical, doctrinal, polemical, and uh, practical. So this fourfold approach to uh, theology, which was present in, say, uh, the Christian theology and the Reformed theology of the 17th century, comes together uh, into uh, Maastricht. Uh, secondly, um, his, uh, he is more known as the theologian, but in his time he was more known as the, as the philosopher, particularly the anti-Cartesian uh, philosopher, as his philosophical works, which not have been studied that widely yet, uh, were, were, uh, uh, were well known not only in the reformed circles on the continent, but also in the Lutheran and even the Roman Catholic uh, circles and his uh, philosophical publications were widely used uh, in the polemic against uh, Cartesian thinking. And then lastly, I think uh, what he uh, also is somewhat forgotten, uh, his his main drive was uh, uh, preaching. He, he wrote, of course, the disputation on the best method of preaching, but in his preface to the Theo Retica Practica uh, Theologica, he writes that he writes this systematic theology in the service of uh, preaching. And for, Edwe, for, for Maastricht, all doing theology and all of our doing theology comes together on the pulpit in preaching. And, and those three elements, uh, systematic theology, uh, philosophy and uh, homiletics are three very important pillars that we see in the Reformed Orthodoxy uh, of the 17th century, but come all together in Peters van Maastricht's work. And of course, the essays in this new volume pick up in each of those three themes, don't they? And maybe we'll have a chance to speak about some of those essays uh, later on. But before we do, could we talk a little bit, Adrian, about scholarly context? Very helpfully, at the end of your book, you've included an appendix which lists all the publications or or many of the publications on Van Maastricht in the 18th century when there's maybe less than a dozen uh, on the 19th and 20th centuries when there's really only a handful of publications in each century. But then you note that in the 21st century there are somewhere in the region of a couple of dozen publications already and we're only at 2020. So what has happened in the field to turn Van Maastricht from being a relatively neglected, perhaps even forgotten figure, to become the centre of so much scholarly activity at the beginning of the 21st century? Yeah, thank you for asking me. This is a very important question for myself as well, and that was also one of the 
motivating reasons to uh, get this book together with a number of scholars. Um, I mean, Maastricht was kind of widely known because of the quote of Jonathan Edwards, who, who, who claimed uh, that uh, in, in a letter to Joseph Bellamy, he said, Turretin uh, is very nice and is very important, but if you really want to have good theology on, on exegesis and doctrine, polemic and practice, you go to Maastricht and uh, he is the best except the Bible. And that is how far uh, Maastricht was uh, known to many, particularly in the uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon uh, world. Uh, not realizing that many of the in the time of Jonathan Edwards were very familiar with Peter van Maastricht. He was the, the preferred theologian to go to uh, in the early 18th century in, in New England. Um, what, what, uh, what we anticipated as, as, as uh, contributors to this volume, that what we have seen in, uh, in the scholarship of Turretin, for example, uh, when Turretin was published in the English language, uh, we have seen an enormous increase of attention to uh, Francis Turretin and his uh, theology and his works. And now with the translation and publication of the Theoretica Practica of Maastricht, we anticipate uh, or we anticipated uh, when we started to work on this uh, collection of essays uh, that a similar trend will be uh, seen in scholarship uh, around uh, Petrus van Maastricht. So this, this book was really put together uh, by a number of uh, scholars to say, okay, anticipating this new wave, let us set some tones, but also let us also show some some aspect that really need to be worked on in, in the future. And Carl uh, uh, Truman in his foreword to this uh, publication has highlighted the importance uh, of, of, of doing that, not only showing what has been done, but also to show what should be done in, in Maastricht research. So in many ways, this book is a roadmap, isn't it? A roadmap that plots out possible journeys through van Maastricht's work uh, in future scholarship. But before uh, we... In part, yes, in part, yes. But I think it's also an, 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 uh, an, a path less traveled hmm. uh, because of, uh, for example, take the exegetical work of Peters van Maastricht. What you don't see, for example, in Francis Turretin. Maastricht uh, was een Hebraist, was considered in his time as a Christian Hebraist. He is deep acquainted with the rabbinic tradition and all his disputations, for example, he has a sevenfold disputation on Isaiah 53, uh, deeply rooted in rabbinic uh, uh, exegesis. Uh, there a lot of work needs to be done and how that will be shaped over time that, that uh, needs to be seen. Yeah, that, that, that's helpful to be reminded that so much of this work is exegetical uh, in nature. Bef As we approach the text, Adrian, um, the first major essay comes from Ryan McGraw, and Ryan is thinking about Van Maastricht's relationship to Reformed scholasticism or to confessional orthodoxy. What is it that makes Van Maastricht distinctive in that context? Well, I... I think there also the international character of Peters van Maastricht is coming out. Um, uh, 
let me go two ways about it. In, in the first aspect, uh, Peter van der Stich belongs primarily to the post-reformation uh, reformed orthodoxy era and, and lesser and almost, I, I would say, not immediately to the so-called uh, Dutch further reformation or the nadere uh, reformatie. In that regard, he is different than, for example, Herman Witsjes, which was well known as a nadere reformatie uh, figure in his time. Uh, Maastricht is, first of all, internationally shaped. I mean, he grew up in, as German, what we call now Germany, in Cologne, studied in Utrecht, went back to uh, the Cologne area to serve there, served in Gluckstadt, uh, in a very international congregation, but then moved to Frankfurt aan de Oder, where he was participant of a merger of churches between the Lutheran and the Reformed tradition. And, and so he was a participant in, in, I would say, a very ecumenical enterprise. Uh, then he goes back to Duisburg, where he studied before, to become professor at the University of Duisburg, which was very Coxean in his, in his conviction, and he participated there. Actually, he says later on in his Theoretica Practica that the Vutian Coxean uh, divisions are unnecessary and should be overcome. He's very ecumenical in, in that regard. Uh, then he, he has made a trip to England for English practical theology. So he had a very international outlook. And I think that represents also the character and the depth of Reformed Orthodoxy of the 17th century. This international aspect is, say, somewhat ecumenical uh, aspect of Reformed Orthodoxy. Now, you mentioned there that famous dispute that takes place in the mid-17th century among many Dutch theologians who line up either behind Vutius or Cuxaeus. And, and you tell us that Van Maastricht has a mediating position there or thinks that these disputes can in some ways be, be, be brought to a happy and fruitful conclusion. Could you remind us what that dispute was and also explain to us in what way Van Maastricht thought it could be brought to an end? Well... I mean, to be very brief, um, Coxey stands more in the, an Aristotelian philosophy that he adheres to, uh, very analytical in his exegesis, uh, analytical, grammatical in his uh, exegesis, uh, very uh, traditional view on the covenant, uh, for example, which became one of the issues that the saints in the Old Testament uh, found their uh, complete salvation only when Christ died on the cross, uh, which was more or less uh, in, in uh, simple terms or, or simplified terms, uh, Coxeus' uh, position. Uh, Fuchius did, did see that different. Uh, Fuchius did see the whole issue on the Decalogue, particular the commandment on the, the Sabbath, on the, on the Lord's Day. Uh, he saw the different as, uh, as Coxeus. And then also in terms of covenant theology, where uh, Coxeus uh, really developed, uh, he was not the first one, but a more comprehensive federal theology than was done before. And what you see then in Maastricht, he, 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 he combines. He is a certain aspect of Coxeus, particularly in his uh, covenant theology, he, uh, he really follows, uh, Coxeus, as, as did, 
I think to a certain extent Herman Witches as well in his book on the confidence, uh, which has, I think, strong Coxian notions. Uh, and on certain aspects, he, he adheres and follows Fuchs, for example, on the Decalogue and on the issue of the saints on the, under the Old Testament. He follows more Fuchs. But so he, he, he tries to go his, via media his own way by, by benefiting from Fuchs' interpretation and as well Coxes, uh, particularly in federal theology. And, and therefore, I think that is also one of the reasons why he became extremely popular in New England of this adherence of federal theology, which was very prominent in, in the the theologians of the 18th century of New England. That's fascinating. One of the other chapters that really jumped out at me in this volume was the chapter by Jonathan Beakey, who suggests that Van Maastricht's political theology requires us to reconsider some of the arguments that have been made about so-called two kingdoms theology. Can you explain to us perhaps why Jonathan Beakey's chapter is so important in that regard? Yeah. Um, I was very fortunate to have uh, Jonathan Beakey in uh, the group to work on this topic. Jonathan defended his own doctoral work on the twofold kingdom of Christ uh, last year in, uh, at the University of uh, Groningen. And his uh, work uh, will be published later this month uh, by, by Bril. Uh, it is an outstanding work on the development in uh, various places around Europe uh, on the uh, understanding of the twofold kingdom of Christ in the particular the post-Reformation era. Uh, but he had not addressed yet Peter Sommerstich. So I invited him to write his contribution. And, and as you noticed, it is an outstanding uh, uh, um, uh, chapter, uh, which I think... Uh, Rounds of uh, scholarship. I mean, in, in post-reformation uh, scholarship, particularly after the work of, say, Carl Truman and Richard Muller and Willem van Asselt, there are so many, say, gaps still available for us to explore. And this is one of those gaps that really need uh, uh, the attention. And, and Jonathan's contribution uh, uh, coming out just out of a very uh, comprehensive study of 17th century uh, reformed understanding of the twofold kingdom of Christ uh, is, is just a tremendous example of gaps that are filled uh, with this volume, with this chapter in scholarship. So in what ways do Jonathan Beakey's conclusions challenge some of the ideas that circulate about the historical development of two kingdoms theology? I, I think uh, what, what uh, also in his own doctoral work and Jonathan can speak for himself, uh, but I think he, he shows a great deal of nuance and that the current discussion uh, that is going around, particularly, I would say, in the United States, is sometimes at a distance from the historical sources such as Maastricht and, and Turretin and others. So I think what Jonathan really contributes to remind people there was a very nuanced discussion going on, and even in terminology, uh, let us be very careful uh, in what we say and what we not say. Now, you mentioned earlier on, Adrian, Van Maastricht's interest in philosophy, and a number of chapters in the volume deal with his relationship to Cartesian ideas. 
um, Elko van Berg, uh, Goshi Kato, um, are, are both interested in this particular issue. So in, in what ways, in, in what kinds of ways did van Maastricht respond to this particular way of, of thinking about the world? Yeah, uh, I think Maastricht in that regard has uh, followed Voetjes uh, uh, very much. Uh, when Descartes came out with the discourse of method um, in 1637, uh, Fuchs debated it and discussed it uh, very soon afterwards at the Utrecht University, um, and and Fuchs became a very say anti-Cartesian, and and Maastricht follows Fuchs in that regard very careful, and the work of course of Asa Gaudian uh, must be mentioned here, uh, groundbreaking work on Voetjes uh, en Maastricht en, en Driessen as, as early respond, uh, responders to Cartesianism. Um, and that is one of the aspects that is, I think, overlooked in scholarship, and that is where the section of philosophy uh, by, by Philip Fisk and uh, Cato and uh, Daniel Ragusa really contributes to show people, so aha, we, we speak about uh, nowadays about philosophy and theology. You see in Maastricht, he's almost a very pre-enlightened figure that still keeps philosophy and theology very close, uh, distinct, but close, um, and uh, show that Maastricht is a very, very important uh, uh, voice uh, in, in discussing Cartesianism. And in, and, and in a nutshell, the main concern, and that is what you see in Maastricht's writings uh, against uh, the, the, the teaching, the philosophy of René Descartes, is that he became very concerned that the ratio reason became another source uh, equally important, uh, and source of knowledge equally important like scripture. And, and that is all his work is, is uh, focused on the importance and primary uh, uh, importance of a source of knowledge. And that is scripture and that is not reason. And with the writings of Descartes that became in debate and dispute, uh, eventually arising in the Enlightenment, that reason was another source of knowledge. Uh, Maastricht following, I think, Voetjes, although with his own accents. Uh, maybe Maastricht worked out the vision of Voetjes, uh, was really concerned that the, the, the status of scripture was undermined by elevating reason as a source of knowledge. Mm, that's helpful. Um, the, the book ends with a couple of chapters which look at the reception of Van Maastricht's work a chapter by Brandon Crawford and a chapter by yourself. Interesting that both of these chapters take us into New England, which was, of course, um, the subject of your earlier work in Before Jonathan Edwards that we talked about in this podcast, I think last year, or maybe it was the year before. Um, Brandon Crawford writes about the way in which Van Maastricht's work was was contributing to discussions about Sandemanianism in New England. And you're interested in discussions uh, of his work or translations of his work into Dutch. In what ways do later 17th, 18th century readers respond to Van Maastricht and what kind of legacy can we see him having uh, in these chapters on his reception? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, these are just two chapters uh, that 
that uh, aim to highlight the importance of reception research, whereby uh, in this case of uh, of uh, Brandon Crawford's contribution highlights that Maastricht was a widely respected theologian in his time by multiple parties and uh, uh, can assist to mediate conflicts. Um, what we see with the Dutch translation, eventually, uh, we see a very similar pattern, even up to the early 20th century. Uh, for example, when uh, the Protestant Reformed Church in, in the United States came into being to uh, separate themselves from the uh, Christian Reformed Church in the 1924 uh, Synod, both parties cite Maastricht and there are more citations by Maast of Maastricht than, than, than citing Calvin. It's a very interesting aspect, but uh, I can also point to 1953 in the Netherlands, there was a debate in some reformed churches, both parties appealed to Maastricht and, and that is his very interesting position when there are those particular theological conflicts Parties go to Maastricht and, and consult them and cite them in, in, I think, in their support then. Uh, but, but he has this, this interesting uh, role. So on the reception research, I think, is a very important aspect for uh, scholarship to be considered. And, and this is one of the ways people can think about to, to do that reception research. That's wonderful. Well, Adrian, we've taken up a lot of your time today. And it's been great to talk about your new book, Petrus van Maastricht, Text, Context and Interpretation, just published by Vanden Hoek and Ruprecht. But before we wind up, could you tell us what you're working on at the moment? Um, yeah, be, 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 before I do this, um, I, I want to uh, close concerning this book. Um, the importance to, to give to young scholars uh, a platform for new research. As, as you have seen the list of contributors, there are very seasoned scholars, but there are also young scholars. And I think in publications like this, uh, if you really want to stay on top of new scholarship and new directions of scholarship, you have to include young scholars. And, and that is my hope also with this book, that people can see the inclusion of new and promising scholars like Jonathan Bicky or the one from South Korea, or the one from Japan or from the Netherlands or from the United States. Uh, these are the new voices, the next generation um, of, of scholars that can help us in showing us new directions for scholarship. Now, coming back to your uh, question, uh, I have decided uh, for the time being not to work on Maastricht anymore. Um, I, I'm doing something on the reception of efforts in uh, the Netherlands. I'm doing something on efforts in Africa, the reception, and I'm working on efforts, the reception in the German-speaking world. So that are three projects of uh, two will be published next year, uh, and one will be published in 2022. So for the time being, um, and I hope also with this volume that we just discussed that a new generation of scholars will pick up on Maastricht and, and do things that are even beyond my own imagination or, or desire to go. 
but, but help us also to develop scholarship from that point of view. Well, Adrian, those sound like great projects. Um, I think I may have heard a version of your paper on Edwards in Africa at the Yale conference last year. Is that right? That's correct. That's, That's, uh, yeah. Well, I look forward to seeing that in print. That was a tremendous paper. But thank you for your time today. Thank you for taking the trouble to come on to the show and for talking about your new work. And thanks for your time and take care. Uh, Crawford, thank you very much for having me on the show and uh, wish you well. Thank you. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.